we're back in Thessalonians, and we'll be talking about the Lord's return. Uh, the world as we know it will come to an end. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ will break through the skies and everything will change. His coming will mean unspeakable glory for believers and unspeakable terror for those who do, do not love the truth. Uh, the Thessalonian Christians apparently had uh, questions and misconceptions about the Lord's return. And so much of the rest of First and Second Thessalonians is about that event. Uh, The immediate impact of the return of Christ, or the immediate impact the return of Christ will have upon believers is resurrection. The resurrection of the dead and the instantaneous change into resurrected, glorified bodies uh, for those who are alive when he comes. You can't live very long before you realize that people die. And that you will die. Uh, your, your house, the house you live in, will probably outlast you. Your clothes may outlast you. Uh, I remember well going through my dad's closet after he died, uh, filled with suits and shirts and shoes, but he was in the grave. The reality of life, uh, its brevity, Uh, usually will strike us by the death of someone that we are close to, someone that we know and love, or by a close brush with death ourselves, perhaps. The message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, solves a lot of things. It solves our separation from God, our sin problem, our dissatisfaction of life without God, but the fundamental thing that Jesus solves for us is the problem of death. Death entered the world because of sin. And that's why death is in the world. And Jesus solved that problem. Uh, Paul said very succinctly, in Adam, all die. But in Christ, all will be made alive. And as this passage says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the immediate impact is this mass resurrection of all believers. What a glorious thing. Well, the Thessalonians uh, eagerly anticipated the return of Jesus. In fact, back in chapter 1, Paul said he commended them because they had Turn from idols to serve the living God and to wait for His Son from heaven. They were doing that. But what they couldn't figure out was how this would work out for those believers who were already in the grave. Their mother or father perhaps or others in the church family who had already died. How can they be taken up with Jesus? Uh, Will those who have died uh, miss out on something when Jesus comes? Uh, Or will we ever see them again? Will we ever be with those people again? So Paul responds in verse 13, We do not want you to remain uninformed. We do not want you to be uninformed. Or I think some translations actually say, We do not want you to be ignorant of these things, brothers. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep. Uh, Apparently, 
the believers, or at least most of them at uh, Thessalonica, just didn't know what the future held for those who died or who were already dead. And so Paul comes in this letter and he says, the Lord will not forget them. In fact, those who have died will be resurrected before anybody else. They will rise up first. And then we, following, will be caught up. Those who are alive will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Uh, The resurrection of believers who have died is not just a comforting idea. Uh, People, even intelligent people in our culture, say stuff all the time about death and dying that is completely made up. This truth is from the Lord. We have this by a word from the Lord. That we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now the goal of this information is to give hope. It's, it's, it's information, it's truth, but it's, it's not just truth. It's, it's truth that's intended to change something on the inside of these people. It's truth that it's, that's intended to give them hope and to give them a hope big enough to temper their losses and their griefs. It's written, Paul said, so that you may not grieve like those who don't have hope. When we talk about hope, we always have to define it because hope in the Bible means something different than hope, what hope means in our present culture or what we might find in our dictionary. Hope in the Bible is confidence in a joyful future. It's an eager anticipation about the good things to come. It's not merely positive thinking, trying to put a good spin or the best spin on things. It's based on something we know about the future, especially our resurrection and our enjoyment of God in the new heavens and the new earth forever. A.W. Tozier said, Let no one apologize for the powerful emphasis Christianity lays upon the doctrine of the world to come. You know, some people think, well, Christians put too much emphasis on, on this. It's too much. We talk about the future uh, too much. No, Tozier said we should, we should never apologize for the powerful emphasis Christianity places on the doctrine of the world to come. Because right there in this truth that we're talking about this morning, right there lies its immense superiority to everything else within the whole sphere of human thought or experience. We would do well to think more about the long tomorrow. And by the long tomorrow, he means our eternity and resurrected bodies with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the best thought in human experience, Tozier said. It's the very best thing in the world you could ever think about. And without setting our hearts and our minds on this hope, without letting this hope saturate us, our attitudes, our outlook in life, guess what? 
we end up living like people with no hope. We end up living like the rest of the people who don't have this hope. And that was, that's what Paul was fighting against in these believers. The Thessalonians' lack of hope uh, was based on ignorance about those who died. Some of them, at least, were grieving over people who had died. And Paul became informed, perhaps through Timothy, when Timothy came back and gave a report on them. But he, 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 got, the, he got the sense that some of the people at Thessalonica, at least, were, were grieving in a way or to a degree that did not demonstrate the power of Christian hope. And so Paul wrote this, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Or uh, the New American Standard says, so that you may not grieve as the rest of mankind who have no hope. He doesn't want them grieving in the same degree or in the same way that unbelievers do. He wants there to be a distinction. Now, uh, we do share the experience of grief with all people. Everybody that's a human being experiences grief. And, and we, we, sh- we do share that experience of grief with all people. But our grief is different. It's, it is t- or Paul wants it to be different. Our grief is mingled with the hope of being together with the Lord. And this future reunion is what uh, tempers or mitigates or heals or softens our grief and makes it, makes it different, makes it distinct. Uh, there's an emphasis in our present-day psychology on grief and uh, the, the various stages of grief and working through grief. And Paul would say, yes, grieve and weep, uh, shed tears. But Paul would also say that our grief should look different uh, from the world's grief. Uh, Christians should not work through grief in the same way. We have a completely different answer. We have the resurrection and reunion with the Lord and and with loved ones uh, to combat an excessive level of grief or an excessively prolonged grief. So, Again, I say, though, because we, it's very important to keep this balance. So do we, as believers, experience grief and sorrow and tears? Yes. The loss of a person hurts a lot. But there is a Christian way of doing grief. There is a Christian way of doing everything in life. Right? I mean, if you know your Bibles... Uh, Everything we do, in a sense, uh, we come at it with a different attitude, with a different motive, just a different way of approaching life. We rejoice in tribulation. We bless when we are reviled or insulted. Uh, We give thanks in all things. And when we grieve, we grieve with hope. Paul described those without Christ as having no hope. I could be wrong on this, but I think if you went up and asked uh, most unsaved people or people just out in the world, uh, 
if they had hope, I, I think they would say they have some kind of hope. And uh, they would tell you that, well, yeah, we're gonna go to a, I'm going to go to a better place or something like that. And I don't mean to sound harsh, but they don't. They don't have hope. They, Paul says they're, they're without hope or they have no hope. They have uh, uh, euphemisms. Uh, they, they have uh, positive sayings uh, that have no basis in reality whatsoever. Uh, they, they may uh, do celebrations of life, but they have no solid expectation of being with the Lord forever. And they cannot claim the promise, today you will be with me in paradise. They don't have a hope anchored in the promise of God. They don't have confidence that they are in that kingdom which cannot be shaken. But we do. And we have hope. And Paul says, we should grieve, but that hope should show even in our grief. Now the subject here in this passage, is grief over those uh, who die or have died, those who are in the grave. But the same hope of resurrection, the same hope of resurrection, the same hope of this future glory, this future joyful uh, experience that we will have with Christ and with all the saints. Uh, in the presence of Jesus forever and ever, this same hope of resurrection should infiltrate and soften, that's the best word I can come up with, help alleviate and overcome all of our sorrows and losses in this life. And we do have lots of losses here in this world. Okay, Paul's talking about the loss of a loved one here. But we, we have other things that we, that we lose, other things that, uh, that we grieve over. We, we lose relationships or relationships sometimes that were very important to us or very dear to us. We lose sometimes possessions or a job, uh, earthly dreams that just never happen or injuries to our body. We, you know, I've heard that when people lose an arm or a leg or a hand, maybe even a finger, there's a, there's a sense of grief. You're, you're, you're grieving over a, a, a loss like that. And so we feel real grief at these things. But in, in all of these things, the, the hope of resurrection, the hope of future glory, of being with the Lord in a world without tears breaks the power of excessive grief. doesn't mean we don't have grief. I hope everybody gets what I'm saying. doesn't mean we don't have gr- grief, but it breaks the power of an excessive grief that kind of keeps us in bondage to grief. Hope, this kind of hope, this kind of uh, victorious hope, I will call it, uh, becomes stifled or, or uh, quenched uh, and grief becomes excessive either because of ignorance about the resurrection, which was happening at Thessalonica, or simply not allowing the good news of resurrection to sufficiently impact our grief. Not allowing the good news of the resurrection to sufficiently impact us in our inner person, 
in our heart, in our emotions. This, I mean, what Paul is talking about is stuff that it, obviously is supposed to impact our thinking. It's supposed to impact uh, our hope, our hearts. It's supposed to impact our emotions. It's supposed to impact something inside us and change our attitude into one of, of having hope even in the midst of grief. Uh, I read an article by Amy Hall in the stream this week, which I, I, I do look at the stream. I don't know this gal at all, but she said, the key to facing and fighting all the suffering and evil of this world is to have a confident hope in the glorious eternity that awaits us. That's really good. That applies not only to death, that Again, it applies to all of our losses and disappointments. Yeah, this news, it's a great healer. It's a great healer of our hearts and our emotions. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of our own resurrection. Uh, Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Uh, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's just another way of describing resurrection. Now, before we get to the main point of this verse, we need to deal with the first phrase. And it's repeated uh, twice in this passage. Those who have fallen asleep. Uh, Paul, he's referring to those who are in the grave, those believers who have already died as having fallen asleep. It's a term that can really only be used for believers. Because when a believer dies, in a a sense, the body goes to sleep waiting the resurrection, but we immediately go to be with the Lord in some very real way, which I can't take time this morning to uh, go into a lot more deeply, but the Scripture makes plain that when we die, we will immediately go to be with the Lord. And there's things in the Bible that communicate we will, we will be able to talk and commune and enjoy that ex, you know, experience very, very, very much. Paul described this as being absent from the body, but present with the Lord. But that will be only temporary until the last trumpet sounds. And Jesus... Uh, breaks through the skies uh, with a shout, then our bodies will be raised up to live life here with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, Paul, uh, let go back, let's go back now. I just want to kind of deal with that phrase, those who are asleep in the Lord, okay? But Paul starts this verse, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Paul is speaking to people who believe that. And this is what you must believe. It's what everyone must believe in order to be saved. Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So, believers are people who believe that. It's essential to our faith and salvation. But Paul says, since we believe that, since we believe that, we also believe God will bring back with Jesus the believers who have died. We, 
In other words, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and we also believe in our own resurrection. We, we believe that God raised up Jesus. We believe that God will also raise up us. Uh, in fact, the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of our resurrection. It is impossible that Jesus would die and rise again, and God would not also raise us from the grave. Now, one, th- one reason I, I think this truth may not e- excite us uh, as much as it should is that we tend to think of our resurrection either as some kind of uh, mystical or ghost-like existence or, or just something that is so different to what we now know as living and having a body that it just, just doesn't mean much. It's just like it's something we, we can't relate to. But when the apostles said that Jesus rose again, they meant that his physical body came back to life. It was different, glorified, supernatural, yes, but the risen Lord was not, the risen Lord Jesus was not merely a spirit or a ghost, but he was a, a human being who could be seen and touched and could eat breakfast and could talk. And, and in fact, he, he, he went right up to the disciples and said, He said, I want you to touch me so that you know I'm not a ghost. I want you to watch me eat this fish so that you know I'm real. And so when the apostles say that you will be resurrected and you'll have a resurrected body, they mean that's the kind of body you will have. Uh, 10,000 years from now, you will be living in the new heaven and the new earth in a body that can be recognized and touched and known with all those who love the Lord forever and ever. And your body will be, it'll be different. It'll be glorious, Paul said. It'll be immortal. It will be spiritual, but nevertheless, a real body, a resurrected body. And this should fuel uh, a sense of anticipation, uh, even, even excitement about the things that God has for us in the future. And it's, it's, it, should be, it should fuel a, a joy, a joyful anticipation of the future that, that, again, that mitigates or softens or heals the wounds, uh, the pains, the losses, uh, the griefs of this life. Here's the problem. We can say we believe these truths, and yet we can live as if they aren't true. We can live as if there is no resurrection. And we can do that with a lot of things. We can say God loves us. Or we can even say, I know God loves me, but yet function as an unloved person. Uh, We can say that God is for us. I mean, we say that a lot here at Real Life Church. We know that God is for us. He's not against us. God is for us. We can say that, but then we can think, live, and express emotions as though he were against us. And we we can do the same thing with the resurrection. We can say, yes, we believe in the resurrection, but then live without 
the hope that that resurrection is meant to inspire in our hearts, in our thinking, in our minds, in our emotions. So we must uh, grasp onto this truth. I, you know, like, I, is there any Bible truth that doesn't require uh, God to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing it? I mean, when I, when I talk about praying for revelation, that's what I mean. We're taking Bible truths and we need to be able to, to see them and grasp them in a way that affects us, uh, that impacts us, that changes our outlook on life. And so we must grasp this truth of the resurrection in a way that produces hope and anticipation and joy about our future. And so we're to live like we believe that we will be raised and that all who have died will be raised. And that will give us endurance. Um, It will motivate us to abound in the work of the Lord. And it will produce a deep and unshakable hope in our soul. Now, although uh, it's not Paul's main point uh, in this passage, uh, it would be a huge mistake uh, to miss out on some of the other things that he just brings up kind of in passing that are like absolutely stunning. And I'm referring to the first part of verse 16. It says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. The Lord himself. Jesus promised. He promised his disciples. He promised you and me, I will come again. And he will. The Jesus who was crucified, risen, and is seated now at the right hand of the Father. The Jesus that you know and love He himself is coming for you. He's the one who will descend from heaven. He will enter again, the second time, that's why we call it the second coming. He will enter again into our earthly space. Uh, The first time he entered as a child born to Mary. Uh, The next time he comes as undisputed king and lord. Uh, he will come as a terrifying judge for those who reject him, and we're going to see that in first, the, the first chapter of Second Thessalonians, uh, which we'll get to. But for us who believe he will come as Savior, it says, for those who are waiting for him. Hebrews 9.28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. And he comes with a shout. Uh, That's in New American Standard, a shout, uh, ESV, with a cry or a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel, meaning, literally meaning just the chief angel or the ruler of the angels. And with the sound of the trumpet of God. Uh, Paul calls this the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, 2. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we who are alive shall be changed. Again, Paul said in a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And that's referring to the same exact event that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians about. The point of the shout, uh, the blast, 
of the trumpet uh, is, is to communicate the, the majesty, uh, the, the glory of this event, of Christ's coming. In other words, when, when Jesus appears, we will know it. We absolutely will know it. I mean, when he breaks through the skies, he himself said in Matthew 24, it's going to be like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other. We will know it when he comes. John Gill, who, by the way, he's an old commentator, and uh, uh, Spurgeon, believe it or not, writing back in like the 1850s, Spurgeon, uh, his favorite commentator was John Gill. He was reading this guy clear back then. Anyway, John Gill said, that may not bless any of you, but I get a kick out of that. John Gill said, these expressions, the shout, the voice of the archangel, the, the trumpet of God sounding. He said, these expressions are used to set forth the grandeur and the magnificence in which Christ will come. Not in that low and humble form with which he first came, but with great glory and with angels shouting, Trumpets blowing and with the saints rejoicing. Amen. I'm looking forward to that. This is a this this is a uh, this is that the great day that we wait for, and it's a great day that's coming for us. Our Lord, King, our Savior, the Lord Himself, will appear, and the dead in Christ will rise. First, we've already talked about that, but, but we need to think about that. We need to meditate on what that means. The dead in Christ will rise first. That means uh, moms and dads and grandparents and children who have died, believers in Christ from, from all ages, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who have died, believers who re, whose remains are in some cemetery, believers whom we love whose remains are in some cemetery, or whose DNA is at the bottom of the sea, or lost somewhere else, all of these will instantly be raised to life. Just mass resurrection. You know, when Jesus died, uh, there's a little detail, or when Jesus was resurrected, there's this little detail in there that probably a lot of people don't know about. Uh, But uh, when Jesus was raised, there were some dead people that came up out of their grave, grave and walked through the streets of Jerusalem. Wouldn't that shock you? Well, that was just a handful of people uh, in Jerusalem. This is going to be like mass resurrection over the entire earth. Isaiah 26, verse 19, I, the Lord put it this way. Your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of the morning, and the earth will bring forth her dead. It's going to happen. Your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. So, and actually, this is, this is uh, it's, I mean, it's revealing the truth of the resurrection, but it's, it's actually speaking not only on behalf of, of those of us who, uh, you know, are missing someone who's died and thinking, okay, well, that person's going to come back to life. Uh, he's actually speaking to those who are in the grave. He said, Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For the earth will bring forth her dead. It's going to happen. You're going to be raised up from the dead. Praise the Lord. 
those, those uh, who are dead will uh, be resurrected first. Then we who are alive, if, if that is us, will follow immediately. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So some will be raised up uh, from the grave. Uh, others will instantaneously, Paul again, to, to quote Paul again, in, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies, we will be changed into glorious, glorified, resurrected bodies. And again, I'm going to quote uh, John Gill, from, from dishonor to glory, from weakness to power, from being natural to being spiritual bodies, this change all the saints will undergo, whether dead or alive, at Christ's coming. The dead by a resurrection from the dead, and the living by a secret and sudden power, which will at once render their bodies immortal and glorious. Then Paul said, we are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The essence of heaven is to be with the Lord. There, there is a danger in thinking of heaven mainly, mainly, okay? Don't forget that word. There is a danger in thinking of heaven mainly as a place to be with friends or family or even with Bible characters. I think we should look forward to that, but there's a problem with mainly thinking about that. The central joy... And focus, the central content of heaven is to be together with our Lord Jesus forever and ever. And Paul said it is far better to depart and be with Christ. It's just, it's far better than anything in this life. I mean, he was, he was saying, well, should I, should I go and be with the Lord or should I remain here on this earth? Should I try to live longer here? And his conclusion, well, his conclusion was that he was going to remain here. But he said, you know, it'd be far better to depart and be with Christ because that's that's just better than anything in this life. All right, hold on to that truth that I just gave you. But on the other hand, there's a danger of thinking of think in thinking about heaven in a hyper spiritualized way that discounts the real sounding blessings of heaven like being together with those we love or enjoying great food and singing together. Uh, on the new heaven, uh, on, on the new earth, we'll be stunned, I believe, by the beauty of the river of life and the fruit trees that bear different kinds of fruit every month. I, I, I think those things are in the Bible because we should anticipate them. We we should uh, we should find joy and even even a sense of excitement about uh, experiencing all those things. And there's, there's just some incredible things. Uh, in the in the Old Testament, especially, I mean, well, the New Testament too, but the the marriage feast of the Lamb that we're going to enjoy, and the Old Testament talks about you know being together, just rejoicing and singing and eating and drinking, and just it's it's uh, communicated in such a way that it would just be there will be no more sighing, no more tears, just this fan, just this celebration, these festivities, this great feast with our God. 
And again, we should anticipate those things. Uh, Randy Alcorn uh, said, God hasn't told us so much about heaven that it spoils all the surprises waiting for us. But he has told us enough, far more than most of us suppose, that we can envision it and get really excited about it. If we want our children or grandchildren to be more excited about heaven than the Grand Canyon or Disney World or summer camp, open up the Bible and talk to them about heaven's attractions, not just the earth's. That's a word for us, isn't it? For us parents and grandparents especially. And it seems clear to me uh, that part of the excessive grief problem with the Thessalonians was, was caused by thinking that they would never see those who had already died, those who were already in the grave. And it seems to me that part of the reason that we do not grieve excessively over the death of our loved ones is because we will be caught up together with them. And the, the key point is that we will be together with the Lord. Um, Paul says, and so we will always be with the Lord. But there's the reality that we're going to be together uh, with the Lord. A.B. Simpson said, uh, At this reunion of long-parted friends, what happy greetings, what tales there will be to tell of the years that rolled between. Then all our tears are wiped away and all our longings will be satisfied. We will experience the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth together. And this is our hope and encouragement in death. And that's why Paul concludes this scripture. Therefore, after, after all has been said, he brings it down to an application. What is the application? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In other words, we, we should talk about this. And... Apparently they weren't, well, they were lacking information, part of the reason, but they just weren't doing that as much as Paul would like at Thessalonica. So he said, brothers, hey, let's, let's start talking about these things. Let's encourage one another with these things. And so I think we, uh, and I include myself, that I should, that you should, that we all should uh, start talking more about these uh, future glories and the resurrection and I don't think there's any kind of problem with using uh, our sanctified imagination just a bit uh, about what we're going to enjoy in heaven in resurrected bodies um, with no tears um, in that place and read places uh, Isaiah it's full of statements, revelation, of course. Uh, other places in the Bible we should just dig into and focus and try to learn all that we can about heaven and our future glory. And then talk about it. You know, talk about it with each other. Uh, certainly we should do that when someone dies in the church family, in the family of believers. Uh, but not only then. And I think, we're, I think we probably err in the, on the side of relegating this topic to uh, 
times of loss or, or even a funeral. But no, we're, 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 this, is, this joy is supposed to saturate us. Uh, it's supposed to change our hearts, our emotions, our attitude. We, so so we need, if it's going to do that, we're going to have to talk about it. That won't happen. So let's, let's, make, let's determine as a body of Christ, as a church family, here at Real Life Church, let's determine to find a way, ask God to give you a word, give you a word, help, enable you to talk with other people about this, to open your mouth. And I know it takes Holy Spirit to do that, but filled with the Spirit, what do we do? We speak to one another. And one of the things we talk about is the future glory, the resurrection. All right, let's stand and pray.